big problem was cramping. I would often cramp midway through long distance events where in the in the heat, whereas I wouldn't in the cold. And then if I wasn't cramping though, I would just generally feel a, a degradation in performance over a number of hours. So inability to hold power output on the bike or pace on the run, uh, lightheadedness and kind of lethargy and fatigue, but not the kind of lethargy and fatigue that you'd normally associate with lack of fitness or with glycogen depletion. Because I think a lot of athletes are familiar with the idea of bonking and blowing up and running out of calories. And you get this incredible strong desire to eat anything sugary and sweet to try and boost your blood sugar levels back up. Mm -hmm. I would, I would suffer a kind of malaise and a real lightheadedness and sort of disconnection and just, you just lose the will to go on. You kind of just, you just mm -hmm. flake out. And then quite often that would be associated with then muscle cramps and, and sort of having to, having to drop out. And it was also like horrific recovery after the events. It would take me days and days to recover from events where I felt like I was fit enough to bounce back more quickly. Hey guys, welcome back to the Adaptive Zone podcast. My name is Matthew Boyd. I'm a physiotherapist and running coach. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you're so inclined, share it with a friend. Today, we're going to be talking with Andy Blow, who is one of the founders of Precision Fuel and Hydration. And they're a company who specialize in helping athletes optimize their hydration and fuel strategies. Andy shares quite a wealth of knowledge when it comes to hydration and fueling. And we focus really on hydration today because we have talked about fueling quite a bit in the podcast recently. And he suggested that anyone who's interested in learning more about their own specific hydration, if you're having hydration issues that we discuss in the show, or if you are just interested in making sure that you optimize your hydration strategy, you can visit precisionfuelandhydration.com and sign up for a, a complimentary sort of discovery call with one of their team to chat about your particular situation and what troubles you're having and how you might be able to address it. Listeners to this show can also get a little discount of Precision Fuel and Hydration products from their website. Just use the code ADAPTIVE15 to get 15% off your first order. Anyway, that's probably enough out of me. I will put a ton of links to different stuff in the show notes today from Precision Hydration, some of their blogs and other podcast episodes, because we kind of scratched the surface a little bit today. It was super interesting. So thank you to Andy for coming on the show. And don't forget to click the link in the description to check out the Running Fundamentals course, which is my free online course that teaches you all about the running, um, the foundations of running performance and avoiding injuries. And uh, yeah, that's probably enough out of me. So let's get into it. So Andy Blow, welcome to the Adaptive Zone podcast. Hi Matt, thanks for inviting me to come on and have a chat with you. That's uh, that's going to be our pleasure, I think. So we're going to be talking all things hydration specifically today. And so could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional work? Sure. Um, so I'm a sports scientist by training. I did a sport and exercise science degree in the late 90s at the University of Bath. And alongside that, I was a pretty competitive triathlete and runner. So I represented Great Britain as a triathlete. I was what I would probably, probably the 
probably um, describe myself as a bad professional triathlete or a good age group triathlete. So I, I did race professionally <laughs> in a few races and I represented Great Britain at, at the elite level, but I was never troubling the podium at that level, really. I did I did get in the top 10 at a few Ironman events and some uh, podium at mm. 70.3 event. Um, I ran 68 minutes for a half marathon, so I was a pretty reasonable runner for a triathlete. Um, but yeah, I was kind of never truly making a living out of that and, and working most of the time alongside what I was doing. I've, I've variously done things like some coaching, I've run some sports science labs, and then over the last 10 years, uh, grown the business that is now Precision Fuel and Hydration. And we're, a, we're sort of a team of around uh, 18 people as we sit here and talk now, working working all over the world with with athletes to help them perfect their fueling and hydration for whatever you know, predominantly endurance tasks they're taking on. And how did you go from, you know, professional athlete into running a hydration company? Well, it was a lot, a lot of it was because of the challenges that I faced as an athlete. So I would typically race pretty good in, in cool conditions or in, you know, the kind of temperate conditions we see a lot of in the UK. If I went abroad and, you know, most people know that, you know, the kind of big triathlons like Kona for the Ironman, very hot and humid. I raced in the Middle East, I raced in um, Asia, and I would always fall apart in the heat. I ended up in the medical tent more times than I can remember with kind of fluid balance, hydration related problems. And they, they, as it turned out, I, I always knew I had a heavy sweat rate. So it was obvious that I sweat a lot, probably more, quite a bit more than the average person my size. But what I didn't know at the time was was how much electrolyte I was losing, how much sodium I was losing in mm. that sweat. And I, I had no knowledge of the inter-individual variability of that factor. And as it turned out, a doctor friend of mine sort of di diagnosed me as having very heavy electrolyte losses. He looked at the symptoms I was experiencing, kind of cramping, underperformance in the heat. I got a condition called hypernatremia a couple of times where you, you dilute your blood sodium levels down and he put two and two together and said, I think we get a sweat test done because I think you'll find that you lose a lot of sodium in your sweat. And he was exactly right. I did a test. I'm in the kind of top five or 10% of, of what you can lose in terms of sodium concentration in your sweat, coupled with a high sweat rate and doing long, hot races. I was not replacing anywhere near enough electrolytes. And if anything, I was over drinking liquids and under consuming electrolytes in, in races. So that was what solving that problem for myself kind of led me to take a much deeper interest in, in helping other athletes with it once I'd finished my career. Okay. And when you say underperforming, what would happen? Was it just that you would be unwell and, you know, end up going in the medical tent? Like what would stop you? Yeah, I'd, typically for me, a huge symptom for me, which isn't the same for everyone, but it, a big problem was cramping. I would often cramp midway through long distance events where in the, in the heat, whereas I wouldn't in the cold. And then if I wasn't cramping, though, I would just generally feel a, a degradation in performance over a number of hours. So inability to hold power output on the bike or pace on the run. Uh, lightheadedness and kind of lethargy and fatigue, but not the kind of lethargy and fatigue that you'd normally associate with lack of fitness or with glycogen depletion. Because I think a lot of athletes are familiar with the idea of bonking and blowing up and running out of calories. And you get this incredible strong desire to eat anything sugary and sweet to try and boost your blood sugar levels back up. Mm -hmm. I would I would suffer a kind of malaise and a real lightheadedness and sort of disconnection 
and just you just lose the will to go on you kind of just you just mm-hmm. flake out and then quite often that would be associated with then muscle cramps and, and sort of having to having to drop out and it was also like horrific recovery after the events it would take me days and days to recover from events where i felt like i was fit enough to bounce back more quickly and in training i would always find that my recovery would be compromised if it was very hot in the summer so i I was clearly getting into kind of some kind of fluid electrolyte imbalance i would suffer a lot of transient um uh sort of postural hypertension you know where you where you feel very Mm. dizzy when you stand up quickly so that would be a, a typical symptom for me in the summer because of caused by low blood pressure, which was caused by loss of electrolytes. And, and when I, what was amazing was when I learned how to correct this by taking in more salt, effectively more sodium, it was like someone flicked a switch. It was like night and day. It, I was amazed yeah. that there were very few things. I mean, you'll, you'll know this as an athlete and a, someone who works with a lot of athletes. There were very few kind of, um, there's, there's, there's very few things that, you can suddenly make one change that makes a whole world of difference. Most, most improvement in endurance sports comes in an incremental fashion. And mm-hmm. we all love to find things. You, we would all love to find things that kind of like make a massive difference. But for me, this was a, an exception to that rule. It was one of those things that overnight made a huge difference once I'd corrected it. And then you were able to perform equally well in the heat or, or just better than before? I wouldn't, I would never say equally well. I think, and I don't know whether it was related to that specifically or whether it was more generic to the fact that I just grew up living and competing somewhere, you know, in the UK where it's obviously relatively cool to mild most of the time. I would I would always prefer to race in cooler conditions. And mm-hmm. some of my best results came when it was actually uncharacteristically cold, when other when kind of athletes who were used to the heat were put at a disadvantage then. I mm-hmm. I did a I did a, a triathlon in Lamberis in Wales once where we practically had sleet on the bike and the water was like 10 degrees celsius and, stuff, and i did really well in that race compared mm, with the right. spanish and the french athletes who'd come over and were caught out by these cold conditions but what and so it would be a lie to say that i would i would even now look forward to racing in extreme heat but i would always feel now that i could do myself justice as opposed to yeah. be totally petrified of, of racing in those conditions and you said that it would take you a long time to recover from races and from harder and not from harder from hotter training sessions. What was it? Was it muscle pain? Was it lack of energy? Was it some other symptom? What stopped you sort of getting out there and getting back to training? It was, it's a hard, it's probably a hard sort of thing to describe, but I would feel noticeably dehydrated. Like I, that, that kind of feeling where you can't physically really drink enough water or enough liquid to to satisfy your thirst thoroughly you know and then mm-hmm. feeling waking up in the night feeling thirsty feeling a bit fatigued the next day resulting in a lot of muscle soreness as well which mm-hmm. um, still will get now so there's been where i've i've been in the uk the last couple of weeks and there's been a, a real heat wave you know a genuine heat wave we were up at 30 odd degrees and i went for a, mm-hmm. a 25k run on sunday morning um, got caught out a little bit, being out there a little bit longer than I thought. wasn't leaving later in the morning. Got relatively, you know, relatively dehydrated, and definitely found that I had to take a day off on Monday, which I hadn't planned to do from training afterwards, just because I felt like sore and tight in my muscles above and beyond what I would have 
expected to feel from how far and how fast I ran. And so mm-hmm. it's that it was those kind of just a general, I guess just a general degradation in your overall feeling of well-being and recovery. Um, I'm not okay. someone who currently monitors things like recovery with HRV or anything like that, but I'd be surprised if it would, if it didn't show up in those kind of metrics, you know, where, cause your heart rate would be elevated and, and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff um, with, with a, a drop in blood volume. And I usually find then if, if that happens to me, like it did last week, it probably takes me about 24 hours to get back on song, which is probably, okay. which is probably sort of the timeline it takes your body to regain homeostasis really. So these symptoms might be ringing some bells for some listeners. So we've got cramping, uh, struggling to perform and hold uh, what pace you feel you should be able to in hotter conditions, uh, struggling to recover from workouts and races for long periods. And um, I don't know what the word is, but it sounds a lot like bonking, but a bit of a different experience where you just can't seem to keep going anymore uh, in certain circumstances. I like the word sort of malaise for that. I think it's like a general feeling of lethargy and disconnection. It's quite cognitive as well. You know, you kind of feel a bit fuzzy and and a bit weak. Yeah, it's you kind of, I guess in some ways, it feels a bit like you do when you've got a bad hangover. It's sort of that. Yeah, that's that's what was kind of coming to my mind as you were describing it. Uh, Yeah which I believe is related to dehydration, although I'm definitely not Yeah, there's expert. a huge component of that that's, that's dehydration related and electrolyte imbalance related. So it's probably why there's a similar sort of physiological uh, kind of similar feeling because the, the physiological symptoms are not dissimilar. You should, uh, you should make a pivot in your company. I feel like a hangover cure is going to make you a lot more money than... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so are those all of the symptoms that people will get related to hydration or are there others? Um, I would say other things to look out for if people are wondering if they've, if they've had hydration-related issues. One is um, cardi- cardiovascular drift, which is a fancy way of saying your heart rate increasing for the same effort. And that's normal mm. to a degree in certain things. But you can see it as a runner. You can see it most vividly if you run on a treadmill indoors. If you run a, a steady state on a treadmill indoors for an extended period, you'll see your heart rate decouple from the speed and, and drift upwards, even when the speed mm-hmm. stays the same. And a big part of that is a rising core body temperature and then the associated dehydration that comes with it because your heart's having to work harder to, to pump blood to the skin. At the same time, your blood volume is getting reduced um, You know when you're, um, when you're exercising. So heart rate decoupling from the from your speed and pace is one thing to look out for. And then the other one is this, I, I did mention it, but it's, it's worth reiterating this kind of um, low blood pressure episodes, like standing up quickly or getting up off the couch and going all light, lightheaded and dizzy that that's often related to a drop in blood volume. Cause obviously when we sweat, you lo- you're losing blood volume. It's blood plasma that gets used to generate the sweat. That's the pool of fluid that your sweat comes from. And as a result, your blood volume contracts and your blood pressure, is harder to maintain. So getting blood up to your brain when you stand up quickly is difficult and you get this lightheadedness. The other one I was thinking was potentially uh, like GI trouble, GI distress, cramping, that kind of stuff. If you you don't have enough fluid in your gut and in your stomach, is this as well something that happens or is that something else? I think it can be in, in the sense that fluid in your gut 
is important, but also for the blood flow to your gut specifically will be you, when you exercise, the blood flow to your gut is compromised and that then can lead to some GI troubles. You know, people it's typically seen when people take on too much carbohydrate and not enough fluid when you're doing something. Mm. You can't die if you can't absorb and process and digest it and absorb it, then if that's often made worse with dehydration. I know that we, we work with some of the, um, some of the, the riders in uh, the pro peloton, you know, in the, with the, running things like the Tour de France, which is going on as, as we're talking, and that's been very hot this year. And they always talk about finding it very, very difficult to eat you know, on the really, really hot days because they, um, you know, because, because the, for various reasons, it takes away your ability to, your desire to eat and also compromises your hydration, which then further creates a problem. Um, mm -hmm. so you kind of get this, you, you get this double whammy effect of, of not getting the energy in and then also, um, the dehydration exacerbating that. So GI and G, the GI system is very, most people's GI system is pretty sensitive during exercise. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of long distance races come unstuck, not because of lack of fitness or training or whatever, but because people can't process the requisite calories and fluids to to match or at least not to fully match but to to stop them from running out of energy and becoming dehydrated to a point where it compromises the performance yeah i read recently in a study on ultra runners that the number one reason for not finishing an ultra distance trail race is gi distress yeah and uh, that there's fluid losses are going to be very high I would presume just because they're out there so long, you know, so they've got more time to lose more fluid. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't surprise me that that's sort of one of the number one, um, one of the number one causes because um, the amount of people that we talk to as a company, we have a we have a, a, a an online booking system where people can book calls to chat to the sports mm. science team at Precision Fuel and Hydration to talk through their fuel and hydration strategies for races and a huge amount of those calls are stimulated by people who've just come off the back of a long distance event and found that even though they thought their fitness was there it's it's a nutrition or hydration related issue that caused them to either underperform or not finish so if this is ringing some bells for people some of the symptoms you're describing and someone's thinking that they're having some trouble with their hydration what's the first step um, I think w one of the first things to do is to start to be analytical in looking at how much you are consuming, you know, fluid and electrolyte wise before, during and, and after training sessions and races, and then, then doing a little bit of research into how those levels compare with what science, what science recommends you should be taking in, because there's a lot of disagreement in the hydration space around whether you should drink to thirst, whether you should drink to a plan, whether you could consume, whether you should consume just water, or whether you should use sports drinks, whether you should use electrolytes or not, and if you do, how much you should take. And the reason I think some of that confusion exists is because there's no one one size fits all answer for everyone. There are you can't say categorically, oh yeah, you should, you'll be fine if you drink to thirst, or you'll be fine if you just drink water. Even though there are plenty of circumstances where people can do both of those things adequately there's no one level of electrolyte supplementation that works for everyone in all conditions so we see athletes who require virtually zero 
electrolyte supplementation, even for relatively long and hot events. And we see some athletes who require incredibly aggressive approaches to both fluid and electrolyte intake in those conditions. And one of the things that we've done is on our website is start to compile case studies of athletes where we've done very detailed analysis of what they eat and drink during events with a, with a commentary alongside it so that people can understand how much fluid they took per hour, how much sodium they took per hour and how much carbohydrate they took per hour to not in order for, for other people to be able to copy that because that's not, there's never going to be two people who are exactly alike. But when you work through and look at enough of these case studies and find people in situations that are kind of analogous to your situation, it does give you a steer as to whether what you're doing is in the right ballpark or not. Yeah. And that's, I think that's that. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that I think the, the phrase here is like people, you need to get in the right ballpark for you in terms of when we're talking about hydration for fluid and sodium replacement and not worry too much about what other in that sense, not worry too much about what other people are doing or other people are telling you because one thing, and I, and I'll put my hand up and admit to this wholeheartedly is that we're, we're quite bad humans in general at, relating our own experiences and transposing them onto other people. It's kind of like, well, I did this, this worked for me, or this didn't work for mm. me. And therefore, you know, we, we can only see things from our own perspective. And I think being able to understand that actually, you know, you need to figure this out for yourself using other people's examples as, as guidance for where the parameters are, but then actually, you know, in science, you'd call it an N of one experiment. You take yourself as a unique individual and you, you play around with how much fluid, how much sodium to take in around your activities. If you do that in an organized way with a bit of trial and error, you can often find the right result. And, you know, you keep mentioning sodium specifically. Is that the only electrolyte we need to worry about or do we need to worry about others? If, if you want the simple answer, it's like, yes, that pretty much is the only one you need to worry about. That's That's a bit of a flippant answer in the sense that all electrolytes that you need to consume reasonable amounts of them as an athlete, but you'll get the majority of them in your day-to-day diet. So potassium, calcium, magnesium, these things are really, really important for cellular functioning in the body. But sodium is the one that we lose predominantly in sweat. So that's the one that's of most interest. And it's the one that's critical for fluid balance because inside your body's cells in the intracellular fluid, the, the, the predominant electrolyte is potassium in the extracellular fluid, the fluid from which sweat is drawn, the predominant electrolyte is sodium. And that's, that's why sodium replenishment is of critical importance for athletes who sweat a lot, because by far and away, when you measure sweat samples, you'll see far more sodium in them than you will any other electrolyte. And so that's why there's such an emphasis on replacing that for sports. Okay. So if we focus on sodium, we've sort of got two metrics if we leave um carbohydrate to one side we have other episodes talking quite a lot about that but you're sweating out uh water and let's just say sodium so that's the saltiness how do you work out how much water you're losing how much fluid you're losing that that's relatively straightforward in that and there's a there's a, a blog on our website actually with with details and a spreadsheet that you can download for free to record your numbers in. But the basic process is that you weigh yourself immediately before a training session or a race, and then you weigh yourself immediately afterwards, having toweled down and removed any sweaty clothing. And then 
the difference in your body weight and you correct for any fluid that you've drunk in the equation, but you basically take that starting weight and the end weight and any weight that you've lost is largely going to be fluid. And, and okay. therefore you get a handle on your sweat rate. So you can put in the amount of time. So if you're running for 90 minutes and you lose 1.5 kilos of weight, you've, you've sweated out about 1.5 liters of fluid because one liter of sweat weighs one kilogram. So it's, it's, it's fairly straightforward mathematics. And if you do that enough times in enough different conditions, wearing different clothing in different climates, you get a sense of what your personal sweat rate is like. And that can be really useful because you can then compare that to what the literature says is normal for athletes. And mm -hmm. you know, immediately, yeah, I picked the, the figure of one liter per hour because that's a pretty typical sweat rate for a fairly fit okay. runner. You might see some runners though losing as little as two or 300 milliliters of fluid in an hour. You might see some wow. losing two and a half to three liters an hour. They're the real heavy sweaters. And just by understanding where you are on that spectrum, it starts to give you an idea of whether you're likely to be someone who can just kind of drink to thirst or whether you're going to need a fairly aggressive fluid replacement plan because your losses are going to be an Achilles heel for you in hot conditions. Yeah, that's a massive range there. So anything between 200 milliliters an hour to 2,500 milliliters an hour and with an average around maybe a thousand milliliters an hour but that's quite a you couldn't i see what you mean about things being individualized because there's no way you could give a, a generic plan to people at either end of that spectrum because they're just going to be totally different in terms of what they're sweating out so what they're taking in will have to be different yeah absolutely and but i think one th one thing that complicates it, and this is where people sort of take exception at the idea of needing a plan for your hydration is for the majority of runners, if you're not doing ultra distance stuff, or if you're sort of, if you're south of a marathon in terms of distance, unless the, the, the conditions are really hot, a lot of the time you can relatively get away with, you know, drinking to the dictates of thirst or drinking to a loose plan, as opposed to having to do anything more structured, because in the period of an hour, hour and a half or whatever, you're, as long as you start relatively well hydrated, you're not going to run yourself into serious bother. You know, it's if, okay, if you are a really heavy sweater on a really hot day and you run for 90 minutes and sweat out three liters an hour, you know, you, you could get yourself into a, a bit of dehydration there. But for most people sweating a liter an hour or, or whatever, running for an hour itself, you don't get yourself, you don't dig yourself a big hole. I think mm -hmm. where, where it starts to mount up for runners sometimes though is maybe in the summer especially it's the it's the day-to-day -day effect if you're training every day and and you start let's say you start monday you know well hydrated but then but then don't drink particularly well and train hard on a monday and then start again on tuesday and you you start a percent or two behind the curve and then do it again by wednesday or thursday you can be starting to get dehydrated if you're not paying attention to it and and lifestyle factors come into it if you're drinking if you're not drinking a lot of um, sort of, if you're drinking a lot of caffeinated fluids, if you're drinking alcohol, those sort of things, which are not really having a fantastic net positive effect on your hydration around all that training. And maybe you're, you're working in an environment that's hot as well, and you're not hydrating brilliantly during the day, training in the evening, all of those things can culminate in becoming a little bit dehydrated and then having a, a knock on effect on your performance. Whereas, 
it's, it's going to be less likely for runners, I would say, that a single training session, unless you're doing a really long run, like you might be at the weekend, a single training session isn't necessarily going to move the needle dramatically badly in the, in the hydration sense. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting that you say the duration of the event because um, marathons have got progressively more popular as the years have passed to the point where, you know, <laughs> they're, they're extremely popular now. And the average finish time for male is, I think, 4 hours and 20. For a female, yeah. it's like 4.40, 4.50. So we're talking, you know, four to five hours out there running. Oftentimes, there's, you know, spring and fall marathons. I've done many that were very hot. And um, this is a real concern for everyday runners. You know, this is not just something that um, people who are, you know, doing Ironmans and stuff need to think about necessarily, especially if they're having some of the symptoms that you described earlier. Yeah. So I was, um, I mean, I've been having trouble with my longer runs and that led me to dig a little bit deeper into um, my sort of fluid losses and stuff and started looking at your uh, spreadsheet that you mentioned earlier that's been really helpful. And just the last couple of weeks, I mean, this is when I reached out to you, I've been filling it in um, after having some pretty terrible long runs and just realizing how much I was sweating compared to how much I was taking in. There was a very, very big gap. So I yeah. did uh, a few weeks ago, a three and a bit hour run. Um, I really struggled and it wasn't that hot. It was what, 16 degrees. And I, I measured my sweat rate per hour and, and the fluid loss was, was not, 0.8 so it was 800 milliliters an hour yeah but during that whole run um i think I, I calculated i was taking in about 100 or 200 milliliters an hour yeah. in fluid so if we've got one side of the equation so that's for me for a sort of i'd say i was fairly typical sweat loss yeah. um if i'm not 0.8 so 800 milliliters an hour yeah you said average is maybe a thousand so if we've got the fluid side of the equation that we can work out quite simply, and um, it's been quite interesting to keep track of it because I have noticed differences. That it's gone as high as 1,200 per hour when it's hotter, up to around 22 degrees, um, and being lower when it's cooler. And it's also related to my effort. So when I run faster, it's a bit higher. When I run slower, it's a bit lower. And I've noticed it seems to be a bit higher on the, the one-hour workouts as opposed to the three hours. So I'm wondering, am I sweating a bit less as it's going on? Um, I don't know if that's a common thing. So it's interesting though, to keep track of it, because now I'm getting some sense of my fluid losses in different conditions. But if that's one side of the equation, that's your, your fluid, so your water, what do we do about the, the salt, the sodium? How do we um, estimate how much salt we're losing? Yeah, good. That's a really good question. Because when you're just no matter what your sweat rate, if you're sweating for a short period of time, the total amount of sweat that you lose, which contains electrolytes, will probably be insufficient to to warrant the need for any electrolyte replacement during a session. You know, you, you'll basically, your sweat, your blood, so the, the way this equation works is your blood is quite salty. It's got 3,600 milligrams of sodium per liter of, of blood. So that's how salty your blood starts off. When you sweat, the, the blood plasma, you know, essentially goes from the capillaries into the sweat glands and 
leaks out onto the skin. And as part of that process, the body tries to reclaim and reabsorb some of the electrolytes because they're a valuable commodity. But it's at that point when different people's bodies react a bit differently. And I lose about close to 2000 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat. Typically it's about 1800 milligrams per liter. So essentially my body reclaims about half of the sodium and half of it is lost. Oh yeah, I see. Okay. Some people lose as much, lose as little as um, 200 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat. So their bodies are very efficient at reclaiming it. And so there's, there's an equation that, that, you know, where you essentially need to replace an amount of fluid and then some, well, anywhere from zero to quite a lot of the sodium that you're losing at the same time over, depending on how many hours you're going for, um, to, in order, in order to help keep the body in homeostasis. And what, what I'm trying to say there, and I've not explained it very elegantly, is it's kind of index linked. You know, the amount of fluid that you take in, the, the higher the amount of fluid, the higher the likelihood is you'll need more and more electrolytes with it. And then that gets compounded by the amount of sodium you're losing as an individual. So you're in your example, tr- doing a three hour training session, I would say at that point, if you're losing close to a liter an hour, then most people at that point are going to benefit from taking in some electrolytes and people who lose okay. more sodium in their sweat are going to require a higher proportion to maintain homeostasis and to keep, to keep balanced, which is exactly why the first product that we came out with as a, as a company many years ago was three different levels of electrolyte drink, you know, kind of 500, 1000 and 1500 milligrams of sodium per liter, because if you're like me and you're very salty, you're going to benefit from replacing a higher percentage of your losses. Whereas if you're not very salty, you don't need to be quite as aggressive with it. And although you can do things like I did, you can do, we, we offer what's called an advanced sweat test where you can visit one of the clinics that's got our equipment and take a sweat test where we measure the, the sweat sodium output. Even with that information, there's not an exact equation as to how much you should replace because because of all the other variables that are involved, the body is in flux the whole time. Your hydration status is never identical from day to day. The exact sweat rate, the exact sodium loss is never the same. But what we tend to find is that once people are able to categorize themselves as sort of low, medium or high when it comes to fluid and sodium loss, then kind of 500, 1,000, 1,500 milligrams per liter are good ratios for those groups to replace. And we see some pretty pretty decent results and and quite often what you were describing you know fatigue at the end of long runs can be dramatically reduced and i certainly find that if i go and do a long run on a hot day if i adequately replace sodium and fluid during that run not only am i slightly stronger towards the end of the run but my recovery immediately afterwards is is massively better Um, okay i think i might sorry you go on carry on I was going to say it might help illustrate the concept if we use a couple of examples. So if we use me and you, um, yeah. let's start with you. And you you said that you lose about two liters per hour roughly when it's hot in yeah. terms of fluid. It's, if it's hot and I'm running hard, so that would be, I could, yeah. So in a in a 90 minute run, I could lose something like three liters of fluid quite easily. Right. Okay. And, and you're quite salty as well. So you might for each of those liters lose 1800 milligrams of salt yeah so uh, yeah sodium so that's going to be that's going to be (laughs) 
but yeah people that's a good point though just to digress really quickly sodium is obviously part of salt so sodium salt is sodium chloride and so, and the and sodium makes up roughly 40 percent of salt so essentially if you lose a thousand milligrams of salt you're losing about 400 milligrams of sodium and sodium is the bit that we that we worry about because that has the most influence on fluid balance so i'm i'm losing essentially in in three liters i'm losing you know north of five thousand milligrams of, of sodium which is mm -hmm. a lot that's like teaspoons of salt <laughs> so this is potentially why you've had such trouble so you are in terms of low medium and high you are high salt and high fluid so yeah, that's exactly. a, a combination that isn't going to do particularly well in the heat now if we take me i am medium uh fluid because yeah. i'm about a liter an hour on average yeah. um which is lower than you uh but how do i know what what my sodium losses how would i estimate that yeah so you can so the, the gold standard is to get a sweat test done so that's when we okay. take a sweat sample and we analyze it and if people anyone listening to this is really keen to have a deep dive into that have a look on our website look 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 in the footer for the how to find a test center bit and you know okay. it, it, it will tell you if there's somewhere near to you if you can't do that though we there are different ways of estimating your sodium loss. You can be very, you can just be very simplistic about it and say, well, are you someone who sees visible salt stains on your kit and clothing and on your skin after long runs, especially in the heat? If you taste your sweat, you know, if it drips into your mouth from your, from your face, is it, or if you lick yourself, does it taste really salty? Does it burn if you've got little cuts or grazes? Um, do you suffer all those symptoms we talked about earlier, you know, like lightheadedness, you, you hate running in the heat, you get cramps, there, if, if you're answering yes to a lot of those questions, it tends to suggest that you're on the saltier side. You're losing more okay. sodium in your sweat. And if you if you barely if you if you think I've I've never thought about any of those things, and I don't feel you know I don't get salt in my kit, and I don't feel particularly pretty after the, running in the heat, you're probably on the lower end. And one part of what we do on our website, we've got a fuel and hydration planner, which if you answer the questions on there, it will ask you questions about your the salt the potential saltiness of your sweat and try and guide you as to whether it sounds like you're in the low medium or high bucket and whilst that is the algorithm that we use is is never going to be perfect it's it, it's pretty sophisticated and it's based on a lot a, a lot of you know scientific evidence and also a lot of experience and we we find it tends to put people in the right zone so okay. then and and the whole point of that is that there's not necessarily a, a right and wrong a perfectly right and wrong answer but if we can get you in the right zone and give you some numbers to experiment around it hopefully shortcuts the trial and error process for you and it does sound from what you're saying like your losses may be more in the in the average bracket rather than being super high in which case yeah. you know three hour run we'd be probably recommending that you use something like the thousand milligram electrolyte replacement drink that we do the that has a thousand milligrams of sodium per liter the average human sweat sodium loss is about 950 so it's kind of in line with that and okay. then if you were losing 800 milliliters an hour of fluid i would say as long as you're replacing four or 500 milliliters of that per hour over a three-hour run mm -hmm. you're not going to go into a huge deficit okay and so replacing fluid loss at around 50 to 60 percent so if i lose a liter maybe 500 milliliters a, 
uh, to 600 would be sufficient to replenish. And yeah, if I, I think say- I'm a moderate salty, moderate sodium loss based on the fact that I don't have clothing marks and I don't suffer terribly from those symptoms, you know, I'm a moderate fluid loss and I, I would seem to be a moderate sodium loss. So then I want to um, estimate that a thousand milligrams per liter is a reasonable sodium concentration. Yeah, exactly. Whereas that. for you, if I'm understanding correctly, if you've got three products, uh, I presume you've chosen them for a reason, which we'll get back to, but you've got the 500, the thousand, and the 1500, you would be going for the thousand, uh, 1500, because you're a salty sweater, you're a high sodium sweater. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. you would be aiming for 50%, 60% fluid replenishment, but your amount will be much higher because you're sweating somewhere in the region of maybe up to two liters an hour which is twice as much as me so you have to drink almost twice as much as me yeah exactly yeah and it's it's not that's it sounds like that's not that's not particularly simple but that is a kind of simplistic view on it in in one sense in that we do find a lot of people who are like me who sweat a lot might struggle to even get to 50 percent of fluid loss replacement because I find it a struggle to drink a liter per hour. That's a lot of fluid for me. There yeah. are a few few people that we work with who drink considerably more than that, but they're rare. You know, they're in their exceptions to the rule. So you tend to find that people who sweat a lot more often are replacing us are forced in a way because of the ability to absorb it in the gut, especially when you're running. It's a bit easier on the bike if you're a cyclist to replace more, but when you're running, if you can drink a liter an hour, that's pretty good going. You know, and probably probably too much for a lot of people to handle um so i'll i'll tend to i'll tend to if it's a very hot day and i know i'm going for a long run i'll do everything i can to prehydrate effectively and then i'll also drink a little bit more aggressively earlier on in the run knowing that it's probably my ability to drink is going to taper off a little bit and i'd rather push a bit harder but that's based on you know literally years and years of personal trial and error an understanding of what I'm doing. And I, I, for example, even now I can hold my hand up and say, I still get it a little bit wrong. Occasionally when, when I'm in conditions, I'm not used to like this weekend when it was really, really hot, I skimped a little bit on the fluid. I was, I I was basically out a little bit longer than I thought I was going to be. It was a little bit hotter because I left a bit later in the morning than I intended to. And all of that meant that I replaced about six or 700 milliliters on a, a run that lasted nearly two hours. And it was definitely on the light side because I felt mm-hmm. really, really felt the wheels starting to come off in the last couple of Ks. And, you know, I probably should have upped it on that occasion. Okay. But, but doing all of that, like I always note these things down, either in my Strava or Garmin or my training diary, how much I had, because they act as fantastic reference points. Because if you compare that to the pace you ran at and how you felt and sometimes your heart rate, you build up a really big picture. And, it was pretty obvious to me in that example that I'd undercooked it. Um, But when I look back at similar runs in cooler conditions, that level of fluid replacement would have been okay. And I I think I was just, I was just a bit blase about it. I didn't really get myself organized to, you know, to take more when the conditions necessitated it. Um, and, and, And honestly, Matt, I think that's one of the things that, 
very few athletes do and it's a really simple thing that athletes could do mm. to improve there is is noting down fairly religiously what you drink and what you eat what you take in terms of sodium replacement and it and you might as well at the same time note down the amount of carbs you had per hour because if you get those three things dialed in how much carbohydrates have per hour how much fluid how much sodium you'll find that you can consistently perform a lot better in your longer training sessions just by getting that knowledge you know and the tools that we have on our website the products we have are all designed to support that process you know you can use the fueling and hydration planner we've got to give you a bit of a ballpark figure to start with and then it's you then the baton's off to you to sort of play around with those numbers and see what your own personal recipe is but the great thing is once you've got that dialed in you can roll it out quite consistently and hopefully perform a lot better a lot of the time and take a major piece of the the guesswork out of the game so i think if i was gonna try and sum up it would be you know it's very much a n of one type situation and you're trying to figure out what you're losing and what you need to replace so your first protocol is are you getting any of those symptoms you mentioned because if you are then you maybe need to pay more attention to fluid and sodium losses and if you're not um i guess you can jump in there would would that mean you don't need to worry too much you're probably getting it about right if you're not never getting those symptoms and you perform reasonably well in the heat yeah i would say you know it there there is the the adage of it if it's not broke don't try and fix it i would say is it applies as much in nutrition and hydration as it does anywhere else what i would say is that for a lot of athletes it's worth it's, it's worth going through the process of writing down and noting down what you're eating and drinking anyway, just to compare. Because I, I would say very few athletes would, would tell you that all of their long, long runs go really, really well all of the time. Okay. We, we know that there's always room potentially for improvement. I would say if I was going to, and this is a gross generalization, but it's a, it's a trend that we see nonetheless, is that a lot of athletes, runners, will underfuel and underhydrate on their long mm. runs because typically as runners we're more used to doing shorter training sessions most of the time and so go, going long and I could I say that in comparison to say cyclists who you know a lot of cyclists will routinely ride for more than two or three hours if they're even halfway serious whereas runners if you're doing a long run it's often not more than once a week and so yeah. our database of experience is limited but on the at the same time if you are genuinely performing really well and like not not feeling like you're having any of these symptoms, then you maybe don't need to be taking so much action. You know, for, for a lot of runners though, if you are finding that your your performance is tapering off towards the back end of long runs and you're not recovering brilliantly afterwards, then the hydration and calorie intake piece is, is one place to go looking. The other one is obviously kind of pacing because if you're just starting too hard, that will have a negative effect on all of that. And I, I certainly, as most runners do over the years, you learn to start your long runs a little bit easier and build the pace as opposed to going out the gates with a, with a lot of enthusiasm and, and kind of coming home with a shuffle. But, you know, this 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 part of it, the, the hydration, the, the electrolyte intake and calorie intake to support the effort is something which, which yeah, the, the majority of athletes could probably do well to pay more attention to it. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the case with fueling, something I am often talking about and surprised. I guess I'm not surprised because I did so poorly with it uh, for the first few yeah. years of getting into running. And and then I see that all the time that just fueling wise, people are nowhere near 
what they should be, which should be, you know, at least 40 grams of carbs per hour, but usually quite a bit more for longer events. But since carbs came up, you know, can we use sports drinks and things that have carbs in and sodium or what are the pros and cons of that kind of approach? Yeah, so the, the typical sports drink that most people know in, you know, say in North America, would be like a Gatorade or in, in other parts of where it might be a Lucasade. It's the like typical um, isotonic sports drink is we always call it like a jack of all trades, master of none, because it, it gives you a little bit of carbohydrates, a 6% carbohydrate solution or thereabouts. It gives you usually around about four or 500 milligrams of sodium per liter. And then it's obviously mainly water. And that's pretty good for some people in some conditions, you know, for moderate conditions, moderate length runs or whatever, a basic isotonic drink is probably a, a decent solution because you need a bit of fluid, you need a bit of sodium and you need quite a bit of carbohydrate. Um, it, it will kind of do the job. If you want to be a bit more scientific about what you're doing or a bit more specific, I always find it, it can be useful to to decouple the fueling from the hydration and have electrolytes and fluids separately through calories. So in other words, using like an electrolyte only drink or electrolyte tablets of water and using gels or chews or something like that for your calories, because then you've got the ability to dial your fluid and hydration up on a hot day without dramatically overdoing the carbs. You can keep the carbohydrate level the same. If you're taking, for example, two gels an hour, but on a hot day, you need twice the fluid you need on a cool day. If you're using an all-in-one drink, if you suddenly drink double, you're going to double your carbohydrate intake as well, which may not sit well with your stomach. So, Or it might need, need to stop and pee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, on a cold day, you, you might massively underdrink in terms of the calories. Mm -hmm. So if you only need to drink suddenly 200 uh, milk, yeah then you're going to get virtually no calories and you've got to balance those two things out. So for me, you'll always find me on a long run with, you know, X amount of gels. I usually take between, uh, between one and three gels per hour, depending on the intensity and length of the run. And then, and then the amount of fluid is kind of scaled most of the time towards right from almost zero. If it's in the winter and it's really cold and wet through to, you know, six seven hundred milliliters an hour if it's if it's really hot and humid yeah i guess where i've been going with it just paying attention this last few weeks and the, the spreadsheet i got off your website has been very helpful for this is just understand like I, I went for an hour long run last night and it was really hot and i was like it's only an hour though but i could probably yeah. do with some carbs because it's the end of the day so i just took some gatorade like a 500 mils yeah. bottle of gatorade but you know i'm, I'm gonna do another three hour run this weekend and I'm going to be more deliberate and I am going to separate my fuel and my um, fluid. And I'm going to be quite specific about how I, how much I intend to drink based on what I've been learning about myself through going through this process of just weighing myself before and after seeing how much fluid I'm taking in, noting down, like you said, how I felt. And, and I've noticed when I replenish over 50% and have an adequate amount of electrolytes, I perform much better, uh, even yep. when it's hotter, which is quite was quite surprising to me, because um, mm. I didn't think that sweating and fluid and sodium was a big problem for me. But I think it is actually a bit of a problem. And I'm yeah. finding that I, I'm starting to understand how to tackle it a bit better. So I think what you were saying about going through that process, uh, even if you don't feel like it's a big deal, is worthwhile for people because they'll probably learn 
how they can uh, optimize their hydration and fueling and, and work out when they need to be really specific and when they can just kind of play it by ear a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And I think what you've just described really nicely there is is one of the reasons why it's been difficult to it's, it is difficult to communicate to people the the nuance of this topic you know in mm. the in the sense that what we all want is a short snappy answer you know do i drink to thirst or not do i need a sports drink or not it's all kind of binary questions and the actual answers are well like all good answers they usually start with it depends you know and like you said you can you can just drink a regular sports drink to thirst on an hour long run on an on an evening and that's almost certainly going to be adequate it's going to help you perform well in that session recover a bit faster afterwards and on you go if you took that exact approach on a really hard hot long three-hour run at the weekend you you would almost certainly find it's not going to be adequate and then and then you flip it on its head and do your recovery run 40 minutes on a monday really easy you don't need anything and and so you've got three different mm -hmm. scenarios occurring with one week where the answer to how do you fuel and hydrate is completely different and and so yeah yeah I'm, I'm a big i'm a big proponent of being organized in you know some organized scientific trial and error around these these parameters and dialing it in because then you, if you're not doing that you are effectively leaving a little bit of potential performance improvement on the table and certainly as events get longer and hotter you're leaving a lot of performance on the table if you're not really getting this kind of structured properly I think based on that, I know what you're going to say, but I had a listener question from Dave. Um, he said, I'd like to know your thoughts on which, if any, is the most effective strategy, little and often, i.e., sorry, small sips every five minutes or more but less often, so 250 milliliters every 30 minutes, for example, uh, or does it not make any difference? I think the difference it makes is is fairly small there are there are there are some arguments most people assume that little and often is going to be best and for comfort for gi comfort it usually is there are there are advantages to putting a bit more fluid in your system at the time in that it tends to empty from the stomach a bit faster if you if you stretch the stomach a little bit and you put more volume of fluid in then the gastric emptying speed can be improved and you can maybe absorb fluid a bit faster mm -hmm. But that's countered against the fact that that can make you feel a bit uncomfortable if you're not used to it. So I always say to people, go a little bit with your instincts on that. If you if you feel like you 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 know how much fluid you're going to want to try and drink over the hour, then space it out as you feel you can. I tend what I tend to find personally is that early on in a long run, I can drink larger volumes less frequently. But as it gets deeper and deeper into it, I prefer to drink little and often. Just that seems to feel like my body is happier with that approach but i don't think there's a right and wrong answer when it comes to that i think as long as you're getting the total numbers about right then that's what matters most of all yeah so you could potentially try both and see what suits you better what what fits with the way you like to run and how your stomach feels and all that kind of stuff yeah there's also the factor of like what kind of terrain are you running Cross as well because oftentimes you know drinking when you're running really hard uphill for example is difficult because you're breathing so hard mm -hmm. um, it can also be the same if you're running on a really steep downhill when you're just moving too fast so mm -hmm. sometimes there's strategic things that that cause um 
differences. And I, I'm not uh, afraid to admit these days that on a on a longish run, if I feel like it's if I feel like hydration or calories are going li- to limit my performance, I'm not adverse to walking a little bit while I drink mm-hmm. and eat something because it's not a race at the end of the day. And I know yeah. that sometimes if you are racing, you want to practice eating and drinking on the move. But sometimes I take a view that actually getting through the training session in good shape is what this is really all about. And therefore, if if I need to like stop, have a pee, maybe walk a bit, have a drink, eat something and then carry on psychologically and, and physically break the session up, that's not a sign of weakness. That's just that's just actually being sensible about prioritizing your, your nutritional intake. I also think it's good it's a good injury reduction strategy as well. If you, you know, doing long runs, especially if you're running a lot on the road, doing long runs with no walking breaks and that sort of thing, it, it probably feels instinctively like the right thing to do because you're trying to toughen yourself up. But actually just taking the pressure off your calves, your Achilles, that sort of thing for a few minutes at a time during a long run is not, not necessarily a bad idea. Um, yeah, I would agree entirely. And I think as well, it doesn't mean you have to do the same thing next week. You can do a nonstop, you know, uh, set pace, set drinking schedule, not going to take breaks. And then the week after that, you might be like, you know what, I want to take five minutes here and just get my um, my fuel, my fluid on board, and then I'll carry on. Um, I do have a question I want to ask because I don't want to keep you too long. I know you're very busy this week. Um for the listeners, Andy's joining us in Alberta this week for the um, triathlon in Edmonton. So uh, I will let you go in a second. But I did want to ask, because I think it's a question that some listeners will have. I got a little bit apprehensive about taking on fluid, and I probably went a bit too far and didn't do my homework properly. But it was after watching a lecture by Tim Noakes on um, on um, hypernatremia on YouTube a few yeah. years ago. I was just wondering if you could talk us through what hyponatremia is just quickly and um, what uh, what steps would be um, appropriate here to make sure that we're not uh, doing the wrong thing as in taking on too much. Yeah, no, it's a really good one to get into because hyponatremia is a potentially catastrophic and fatal issue for, for athletes. There's, there's a, a number of recorded deaths from hyponatremia in marathons and ultramarathons and other sporting events. And hyponatremia, um, the, the word is, if you break it down, hypo means low, and natremia is to do with sodium in the blood because sodium, the chemical symbol for sodium is Na. So that's where the natremia bit comes from. And if you dilute the sodium levels in your blood, if you remember I said earlier you were about... 3,600 milligrams of sodium in every liter of blood, which is about 135 to 140 millimoles per liter. If you get down below, if you dilute that down to below 130 millimoles per liter or so, you're becoming quite substantially hyponatremic. And that typically happens in runners or athletes when you, you drink an excessive amount of water compared with the amount of sweat that you're, that you're losing. So the reason Tim Noakes highlighted this in the sort of starting in the 1990s, early 2000s, was they were seeing when when they increased, when the sort of information about dehydration being catastrophic to performance was promoted and in some ways arguably over-promoted by companies like Gatorade, 
they saw lots of potentially sort of slower marathon runners who had time to drink more and also were sweating a bit less because they weren't working as hard drinking a lot of water in in marathons because of the frequency of the aid stations getting concerned about being dehydrated and actually doing the opposite and diluting their blood down and what happens when you over drink if you can't pee is because when you when you exercise you you don't urinate as frequently your body releases hormones that stop the kidneys from producing as much urine fluid is, is obviously going to build up in the body if you're drinking at a rate greater than your sweat losses and that fluid has to go somewhere and it gets shunted out of the blood and into the body's cells and causes them to swell up and the big problem that happens with hyponatremia is swelling of the brain so your brain becomes waterlogged and, and notes wrote a very famous book called waterlogged all about this phenomenon and really sort of threw the book at companies like gatorade for promoting over drinking essentially during exercise and, and causing some deaths the now that to counter that i think so there is that there, there is or there certainly has been a problem with people over drinking significantly in ultra distance or in distance events and noakes's argument against that was to say well in order to prevent this people just need to drink to thirst because thirst is driven by largely by the sodium levels in the blood because because you're sweating out more fluid than sodium proportionately as you get more dehydrated you'll become more thirsty and then as you drink water that will that thirst will decrease and so it's it's nicely finely calibrated and you will never become hyponatremic if you drink to thirst which is which is an argument which has a lot of validity it certainly has a lot of validity in you know day-to-day -day life you don't need to particularly drink to a schedule if you're not sweating a lot i think for me where it where it doesn't cover us is when you're exercising hard in especially in hot conditions with high sweat rates and and or with heavy amounts of sodium loss in that sweat because at some point you you are going to become volume depleted and potentially hyponatremic at the same time and we actually published a paper a few years ago in the uh, British Medical Journal, a case study of an athlete and, and also someone with a condition called cystic fibrosis. And people with CF are interesting cases because they have really high salt losses in their sweat. Their sweat glands don't function well at all when it comes to reclaiming sodium. And they can lose even you know a lot more than I do. They can lose two and a half, three thousand 3,000 milligrams of sodium per litre of sweat. And they often suffer with hyponatremia if they don't drink lots of electrolytes in their drinks and they don't put a lot of sodium in their drinks so there's a fine line to tread here if you over drink and especially if you over drink plain water you can definitely become hyponatremic and that's a real problem on the flip side if you're losing a lot of fluid and sodium there becomes a point at which replacing some of that sodium with the fluid is important because it helps maintain blood sodium levels and stops you becoming hyponatremic so kind of like anything in life it's it's a game of moderation you've got it you and and moderation means different things to different people what's moderate to me with very heavy losses would look very aggressive to you with only moderate losses and mm -hmm. and so that's where it all for me comes full circle to this kind of individualization thing and yeah. tim notes to be clear tim notes did is an amazing guy and he did an amazing job in highlighting this issue but but for what it's worth, I think he went too far in his messaging in terms of decrying the use of sodium. Absolutely. He was saying that he says in his book that, you know, sodium should not be used by athletes. It's pointless. It's it's unnecessary. And I think that's a step too far because we've seen enough evidence and 
to suggest that you know, using it moderately or appropriately based on your level of losses can actually help obviously maintain your blood volume, help maintain your sodium levels and help maintain performance a lot better than, than not doing that. And I, I guess my takeaway would be if I'm measuring my fluid losses, I'm estimating my salt losses and I'm paying attention to how I feel and how I'm reacting to um, different training, particularly those longer, hotter training runs, you know, taking notes on how it went, how much I sweated, how much I lost, how much sodium I took on. That's only really going to help me avoid hyponatremia, natremia, sorry, or dehydration. It's going to give me some parameters to try and work between because we can't remove the risk entirely if we're going to run this long in the heat. Absolutely, yeah. And that is that is exactly it in a nutshell. You know, you're trying to avoid hypernatremia by overdrinking and you're trying to avoid dehydration by underdrinking. And it's getting in that zone, that sweet spot for how much fluid, how much sodium you need as an individual that that is the the ace card if you can if you can pull it. And and I think to be clear, that zone isn't really, really tight for most people. You know, there's an mm. amount of you've got you've got a fair you're hitting a barn door here, not a bullseye. You know, okay. but but that that point that you made in there, which is really important for people to to grasp, is that it's a combination of using that kind of scientific knowledge and having some guardrails, but never ever also not reacting to your instincts, you know, listening to your body. That probably a good analogy for runners is a pacing plan. You know, you'll most runners will go into a marathon or whatever run it is with a schedule, with a, an idea of what minutes per mile or minutes per k they want to run, what time they want to get to certain junctures in. But at the same time, once you start on the day, you have to make fine adjustments to that pacing plan based on how you feel. You're not going to just carry on at seven minutes a mile if you're absolutely, if it feels way, way too hard on a given day. And like, like, like that, you need to approach your, 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 your fluid, sodium and your calorie intake with a bit of, um, yeah, a bit of, of dynamic adjustment on the fly 